Okay, so we'd like to welcome you to part three of our current event and weekly Bible study for January 20th, 2008. And we're going to continue here with, uh, and conclude here with Joel Osteen. Um, the statement that we had just read, I'll just reiterate that again. Uh, this is a, this is a statement that Joel Osteen actually made. Uh, he wants to make church relevant. He says, give them something you'll be able to take away. I find people today are not looking for theology. There's a place for it, but in your everyday life, you need to know how to live. So, in other words, we don't want to live by the Bible. We just want to kind of go and, if it feels right, do it, evidently. So, that statement is loaded with the seeker-sensitive code. See, the seeker-sensitive code is essentially, they're, they're seeking membership for the church. They don't care what it takes to get them in the church. It's not about holy living, it's not about the Bible, it's what feels right. So they're going to entertain them, they're going to tell them what they want to hear, and that's called being seeker-sensitive, at least in part. So of course, Osteen's style is upbeat. Would you really expect negativity from a positive confession devotee? Deliberate? Absolutely. He really believes much of the word of faith nonsense his father taught him all his life. Not to mention whatever offbeat spirituality he might have gleaned from his two years at Oral Roberts University. Did you know he went there for a couple years? Yeah. So, to be a success in marketing, you have to know where people hunger. Or you have to create a desire in them to create a hunger for something they currently do not have or formerly never knew they needed. All commercials can be condensed down to one of these two truths. So this is all this is, 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 is his way of marketing his church. <clears throat> so too has become the mega church pastor. So to become a mega church pastor has to make the church relevant. Okay, so the church has to be relevant in order for a mega church pastor in order to make the big bucks and get the, get the masses of people through the door. He has to give the people what they want. Something that soothes the spiritual hunger. The lukewarm spiritual hunger. In order to be a success, large masses of people and money, pastors must, must preach on challenging messages that uplift rather than convict. He must not pander to the lowest common denominator and make sure that whatever is taught does not offend anyone at any time. Because every time you offend somebody, you're going to lose a certain percentage of your congregation. Okay, In, in today's modern day world, that's exactly the truth. What we are seeing is really nothing new. It's simply a fulfillment of 2 Timothy 4, 3, and 4. For the time will come that they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from truth, which would be the Bible, and shall be turned unto fables. Now we're going to see here that all Osteen does is get up there and tell stories. He's going to admit that out of his own mouth. Well, what are stories? These are just fables that he's telling um, and trying to, <clears throat> in order to try to make church relevant. So what he is, is really nothing more than an unbiblical, glorified storyteller. You know? He should come out there like with Mr. Rogers, with like with a sweater on, and, you know, talk real... He already has the talk and all the other mannerisms down. He could just come out like Mr. Rogers and do his thing. Um, <clears throat> and this is, again, this is how you make the big bucks, doing this. So this is exactly where multitudes of people are spiritually today. The above text also helps to explain the phenomenon of people like Robert Schuller, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and now Joel Osteen. Osteen goes on to say that, quote, I find today that people are not looking for theology, end of quote. <clears throat> well, that is obvious, because if they were, they would not find any sound theology at Lakewood, his church. 
Although he does not reveal to the readers where he found this astonishing fact out, it appears the folks he has talked to have no interest in theology. And again, that's why the Bible says, and my people love to have it so. God's letting them have what they want for a time. Just like he did the, well, he let the prodigal son have it his way for a time too. Most of these people, though, are not going to be like the prodigal son and come back to the father. Hopefully some of them will. I don't want to believe that every single one of these people in these, these congregations are all going to hell. But the only way they're going to get right is the same way the prodigal son got right. And that was through God's judgment in this life. So that they have a hope in the next life. Because if God, if you're living in sin, and you're living like the devil, and you go along your merry way, like the rich man, and you die and you plunge into hell, there's no second chance. But if you're living your life, and God judges you, and he takes you to the hog pen, and you finally see the truth and see the light, and get saved, well then there is hope for you. So see, God's judgment in this life is much more merciful than God's wrath in the next. If you think about it. So if we go further, <clears throat> lest you think me a bit harsh, let me remind you that theology simply means the knowledge of God. In essence, Osteen has said that people are really not interested in learning about God. Well, really learning about the Word of God, because that's our rule book. Somehow, undoubtedly, due to his lack of biblical education, he has made a disconnect between knowing the God of the Bible via sound biblical theology and knowing how to live. Okay, this guy goes on to say, My wife and I can testify to you that the more, more accurately, um, can testify that the more accurately you understand God within the biblical context, the better life you will live before Him. That's true. Okay, so the better we understand, but see, Joel Osteen saying the exact opposite. We're not concerned with theology, we need to know how to live. It's as though the Bible's not good enough for Joel. That's what he's really saying, if you think about it. The same is true for every man who mounts a pulpit. God, God does not tell us to feed the sheep what they want to eat. Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. In John 21.16, Jesus said, feed the sheep, not entertain them. We are, we are to give them the word of God in its totality. Any pastor can fall into the trap of becoming a people pleaser. This is why Paul through the Holy Ghost, warn young Timothy in the verse in the verse just above and the one I cited where we talk about in 2 Timothy 4.2 um, I charge thee therefore before God the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom preach the word, be instant in season, out of season reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine that's what we're trying to do today as well as exposing this wolf in sheep's clothing Timothy is warned to be steadfast in his proclamation of the gospel and to be ready in his preaching to reprove, rebuke, and exhort the people according to the scriptures. How we are to preach with all long suffering because such preaching is unpleasant to people's carnal nature and with doctrine. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. So some people say doctrine. I can hear the seeker sensitive pundits say, oh, come on now. Surely you know preaching doctrinal messages is passe. Osteen would do well to heed the word of the Lord from a genuine prophet who stated in Ezekiel 34, verse 2 and 3, Son of man, 
prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. It says they do feed themselves. Well, how, how do you think he's getting rich? Would that be considered kind of feeding himself? Is that how he's putting food on his table? By being an apostate? Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat and ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. They're not feeding the flock. They're feeding them, as, as the guy said before, spiritual junk food. That's all they're getting. There are many biblical themes which are very unpopular and even politically incorrect. Yet the faithful pastor and teacher will expound on these topics as well so that the flock under his care is receiving a balanced spiritual diet and is able to walk in, full, in the full light of God's word and not in the shadows. But a lot of this falls on yourself, too. Because you need to seek these things out. You need to study to show yourself approved to God. Pastor can't do that for you. I can't do that for you. You have to take it upon yourself to do that. And to pray, and to live holy, and you know, just to, to obey the biblical um, mandates in the Bible. Since we know his training is not um, theological, then what is it? He did attend Oral Roberts University for two years, but his area of study had to do with television production and marketing. But like it would matter in this apostate cemetery that he went to, I mean seminary, sorry. Um, so he specialized in television production and marketing when he did go to Oral Roberts. <laughs> now listen to this quote from him. Now, when was this taken? I just want to see the reference on this. This is um, my ninth reference. This was in June 2004. Charis Charisma Magazine, which should be called Charismania Magazine. June 2004, page 44. All these quotes are referenced. <clears throat> so now I'm not making this up. Meanwhile, son Joel, one of six children, was learning the business of television. Growing up, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be involved with TV production. That's what Joel said. He says, that was my passion. In 1981, he came home from Oral Roberts University to start Lakewood TV Ministry. So he, came, he went there to learn the TV ministry so he could come back and implement it in his dad's church. And then when his dad died in 1999, he took over that big apostate mess and made it more apostate. For 17 years, Joel was behind the scenes handling all the television marketing for his father's ministry. The next statement from Charisma article is a very revealing one. The younger Osteen's television marketing talents and his dad's preaching skills resulted eventually in the church, in the church churches being aired on stations nationwide and in more than 100 countries. So it was getting pretty big before even Joel ever started it. Joel Osteen had the ability to get his father's heavily word-of-faith-influenced message out over all America and into 100 foreign markets due to this dynamic duo of folksy preaching, teaching, and highly visible presence on television. Lakewood Church grew to close to more than 8,000 members at the time of John Osteen's death in 1999. So he had 8,000 then. With his sick, father sick in the hospital, John asks his son... Joel, I don't know if this was his deathbed or what, but he asked his son Joel to preach for him that Sunday. Initially, Joel balked at the idea and said no. <laughs> he then relented, and here are Joel's own words concerning his 
day of preaching. Now, remember, he's had, he's never done this. He's just been in TV. And I'm not saying you have to go to cemetery to know how to preach, okay? I never did, and I thank God I never did, to be quite honest. Because for the most part, I see sem seminaries do more harm than good. Because of all the things they they end up teaching. I'm not saying every person that's ever went to seminary is bad, or, or nobody's ever learned anything good. I'm not saying that. Okay, I'm not making a blanket statement. I'm saying in general. Okay? Think about it. The preachers out there, 99% of them, at least, are just about totally apostate. Well, where did they get trained? At the cemeteries? If the cemeteries were teaching them right, why did they come out there so apostate? And stay so apostate? There's got to be a problem with the seminaries as a result. It's cause and effect. So he got up there. This is what he said. He, um, he relented. Hear Joel's own words concerning his preaching that day. This is the first time he ever preached. I just got up there and told stories. I wrote in here, Doug will love this. <laughs> I was so glad when it was over. I said, I'll never do this again in my life. End of quote. Sound like he really had a conviction to be a pastor and preacher to me. Now I understand he get up and do something for the first time, but this guy had no desire at all to do this. He was called to the TV ministry, Doug. But if he's got to preach, he's going to tell some stories. I Again, I see this guy being the future Mr. Rogers. Just needs to get the sweater going. So that was the beginning of his public ministry. He just got up there and told stories. Joel has been telling stories ever since that have been tickling the ears of the multitudes. Here is an article that describes Joel's style of preaching. <clears throat> the appealing style of Osteen's personality in the pulpit is unmistakable. It is part of the reason that Lakewood's current level of success... Wow, I don't see Jesus Christ getting the credit there at all, do you? No, it's his, his appealing style of personality. Everyone agrees Osteen's preaching is the key ingredient, though. Descriptions of his style include simple, down-to-earth, practical, relatable, easy, folksy, humble. Isn't that special? I feel a hallmark moment brewing here. Maybe a group hug building? I don't know. You never know. It's 10 a.m. when he began his sermon. He probably ends it at 10.05. He gives some sermonette snippet. <clears throat> it's 10 a.m. when he began his sermon. The theme is practical, as he gives example after example of the importance of following God's timing rather than one's own. He keeps the tone cheerful, optimistic. God doesn't want anybody to be walking out of here heavy-hearted and downcast. No, we wouldn't want to get convicted of our sin. No, we would never want to want to do that. I mean, let, let's just, for, just real briefly, let's just look at that. So, here's what Joseph says. He doesn't want anybody... Why? Because the, he'd lose a lot of money and people wouldn't like him. Even though the Bible says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Even though, you know, the Bible says, let your laughter be afflicted and mourn in James 4, verses 8 through 10. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. No, but we don't want to have any of that. No, people might not like him. He might lose a lot of people, lose a lot of money. I'm sure he's got a pretty big, you know, uh, a lot of bills to pay every month with all that overhead he's got. Poor guy. You know? I mean, he's only raking in $55 million a year. That's probably a lot more than that this year. That was that one article, I think, was from 2005. Who knows what it is now? You know. He might not be able to put food on the table. 
So anyway, Joe Osteen is a charismatic in his personality. And really, in, in his beliefs as well. If he's a word of faith, he's charismatic. He says he's been baptized in the Holy Ghost or whatever. Now, I don't see him. I, you know, it would be really funny if all of a sudden, during one of his services, he starts preaching in tongues uncontrollably. <laughs> and some guy from the audience says, Oh, you're speaking in my language, Swahili. Why are you cursing God? And you might say, oh, what are you talking about? I'm saying that's what's happened a lot of times with people that speak in tongues. They go to other countries, Pentecostals, and they start speaking a language that's indigenous to that country. And all the people look at that. And I've heard this story more than once. And these people look at them like, why are you cursing Jesus Christ? That's, that's, that's another really bad thing about tongues. You don't know what you're saying. You know? So, it's risky stuff. Joe Olstein is charismatic in his personality. He's not a bad-looking man. His delivery is as non-threatening as the positive messages he delivers. You're not going to get. You're not going to turn on Joel, my dad, who avidly will get violent. My mom too will get violent if you bring up Jesus Christ. He threatened to blow my head off one time. He said, "I'm going to get a blank and gun, and it's the worst cuss word you can say." And blow your blanking head off. And I said, why? Because I love Jesus Christ? I said, go get the gun. I told him, I said, go get the gun. I'm right here. You want to send me to heaven? And then he said to me, and this was a long time ago, and then he said to me, why do you hate your mom and I? And I'm like, I don't hate you, I love you. And all that anger and rage just drained out of his face, face instantly. Instantly. And I've never had a knockdown drag out with him about that subject since then. He kind of respects what I do, in some ways, I think. Because I do expose the very things they see as hypocrisy. Not to say, not to say that makes me so wonderful or good or I'm better. But I'm saying he does... I can tell him like this stuff. I can actually go to my dad and have conversations with him about somebody like Joel Osteen. I can! Because I'm actually exposing the very hypocrisy that he sees so evident, and the rest of the world does too. There's actually ways that I can relate to my dad and my mom much better than I can relate to the average lukewarm Christian. Because if I tell this to them, they're going to get offended. Isn't that sad? I can go to somebody that basically hates Jesus Christ, him and my mom both, and relate to them certain things better than I can to the average Christian. Now, not everything, but this stuff, sure. Pretty sad. So, perhaps I am reading, um, reading in too much, yet when I read the practical, it makes me think that he believes teaching theology is somehow impractical. He's not reading into this too much. He's, you know. The example after example simply means he tells a lot of stories, anecdotes that somehow relate to the message in which he may cite one or two proof texts to make his point. I would be very, very surprised. If, I mean, we haven't even talked about the Bible version. I could have went down so many other rabbit trails on this. But for time's sake, um, I wanted to try to keep it to three teachings if possible. But I mean, this guy, is, he's just unbelievable. I, mean, I, I would almost guarantee he doesn't use the King James Bible. I mean, I would almost go without saying it also concerns me when a pastor can make the statement that God does not want anyone walking out of here heavy-hearted. Uh, then again, about the, the whole Bible version issue, I haven't heard him quote one verse yet. It's like, you know, the Joel Osteen Bible. 
which is really what he goes out of. He's just telling stories. Maybe talk a little bit about Jesus or whatever. You think this guy ever quotes verses and gives verse names? And, and like that would matter to him? I don't think so. It also concerns me when a pastor can make the statement that God does not want anything, anybody walking out of here heavy hearted. My Bible says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance. That's right. That's right. See, that's how you get saved. Typically, godly sorrow. Oh, well, that's not how I got saved. I just said some little prayers at Joel Osteen's church, and, and, and you know, I don't even, he probably doesn't even give altar calls or anything like that, I'm sure. But let's say you did go to one of those feel-good churches and, and they had your feel-good altar call and you come, come as you are and it's okay. and No, you're, you're not really a sinner. We're not going to really talk about that. Really, you know, repentance is overrated and, um, you know, we don't want to make you heavy-hearted. But the Bible says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance. The Bible also says, The goodness of the Lord leadeth thee to repentance as well. But if God sends you godly sorrow, that is His goodness. Isn't it? Isn't he being good to you when he chastens you? He really is. I know the Bible says no chastening for the you know present is joyous. But if you endure, endure chastening, then you'll be treated as a son. A son, you know, not the son of God, but as a son of God. That's how the Bible refers it. So, godly sorrow work with repentance. That's what I pray for people. I don't pray that, that you know, the Bible says, well, the Bible says bless them that curse you. What's the best blessing you can pray for somebody that they get saved? What's the way they're going to typically get saved? Through God's judgment. If you look in the New Testament, when God's judgment fell, people always got saved. When Ananias and Sapphira were killed, what was the result? Many were saved. Many people got right with the Lord. They came together. They burned their curious arts. They repented. They got saved. They lived right. That's how God is. So, God's judgment on somebody's in this life is giving them and affording them that chance to hopefully really truly get saved. That's typically how he works. That's why, you know, the fear of God is always connected with that as too. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about the fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding, wisdom, knowledge. It's all these things wrapped up in one. Humility is associated with that too. And again, that's a whole other Bible study. We've done this Bible study in the past. Um where we talk about the keys to answer prayer and things like this. It's one of the titles of one of my sermons. So, if we go further, at times God does want us to walk out of the service heavy-hearted if we have been sinning against His will. We should allow the Word, when properly expounded, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, when genuinely present, to break us, to convict us of sinful attitudes and practices. I totally agree. However, if all you ever hear is upbeat, cheerful, and optimistic messages, there is little opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work conviction in the hearts of the hearers. This folksy, down-home, non-confrontational type of message also goes a long way to explaining the huge crowds that gather to be entertained. Let us entertain you. This is the next part here. Entertain, oh yes. It's not only Joel's preaching style, but the music at Lakewood. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the music ministry. Oh, yeah, if you have it. Um, the music of Lakewood is an important ingredient in drawing large hordes of people. 
I, I wasn't fully aware of this until I read this. Once Joel took command of Lakewood's already large congregation, at the time it was six to 8,000 members, he began to expand the musical talent as well. See, Joel's expertise is in the TV ministry and in the marketing end. That's where he's really good at. Okay? This is another quote, this is another referenced quote. Uh, four years ago, when Cindy Cruz Ratliff former member of the Dove Award-winning Cruise Family Gospel Group, became Lakewood's Minister of Music. That's a biblical title, too. I mean, you know, I see a lot of women in the, in the New Testament and the Old being ministers of music over a church. You know. Anyway, the church had only one Sunday morning service. Soon after Cruise... And I guarantee you, this is Christian rock. Okay? Christian rock. Which, there is no such thing. I've done a whole teaching on Christian rock, too. The fallacy of it. The church had one Sunday morning service. Soon after Cruz Ratliff arrived, Lakewood expanded when two Sunday morning services were added. The growth was extremely rapid, says Cruz Ratliff, who still serves on the 200-member Lakewood staff. Sounds like they're coming for as much as the weekly apostate rock music concert as they are any lukewarm preaching that Olstein's saying. So see, they get, they get both things there. They get their lukewarm preaching, and then they get to be entertained by their music. And my people love to have it so. Star power brings people to the churches as well. Oh good, we got to have star power. Lisa, come on. Let's get with it. You know, I haven't had any stars here, over here lately. I need to have some stars. You know? Especially musical stars. And Joel is not ignorant of this fact. He's a shrewd businessman. He doesn't look like he'd be shrewd at anything, though. But he evidently he knows what he's doing in that regard. Well, he's got his, you know, father the devil helping him. Uh, as as minister of music, Miss Ratliff knows in the contemporary music scene, and she has no doubt will help to add musical strength of this mega church by helping to bring some more musical talent. Another another reference quote: Helping to spice up that mix are the two most prominent names in worship music. Marcos Witt who fills stadiums in Latin America for worship conferences, was tapped in 2002 to pastor Lakewood's 3,000-member Hispanic congregation. Also adding diversity to Lakewood staff is Israel Houghton, whose soulful worship anthems are sung around the world. Well, see, he's got something for everybody there. The music at Lakewood is contemporary. Oh, I bet it is. They have musical stars that appeal to the Hispanic. That would be the wit person. The Let's see here. Which one was that? Um, <clears throat> Marcus Witt. Okay. The African Americans have somebody for them. That's the Israel Houghton. And the Caucasian members have Ratliffs. So see, they got all their bases covered. Isn't that great? They need to have somebody that for the Japanese members know next, or something. I mean, maybe the Orientals. Yeah, and then Swedish. They can go right down the line, all the countries. Where they got something for everybody. It's like going to Baskin Robbins. You got your whatever, 59 flavors there. That's what Osteen's church is. It's something for everybody. He's got nothing for me. I heard he's got a, I think he has a gym in his church, though, so I might not want mine working out if I could go get a gym membership there. Maybe get a good coffee at a Starbucks or whatever. He probably got a Starbucks. I don't know. Some of these, I've heard some of these churches actually have Starbucks in them. So the Starbucks goddess coffee. 
I highly advise you never, ever go to Starbucks. They're absolutely, rabidly pro-abortion, pro-homosexual, put a lot of their money into those causes, and if you ever saw the original logo of Starbucks, it's actually a woman, I can't even describe it, because it's not appropriate for me to say it. But, it's a goddess coffee. She is a goddess. And the original logos, I've actually got an email which shows you the original logo. And it's pretty obscene. It's the same logo today, they've just cut out a lot. Same logo. So, anyway. Um, <laughs> okay, so the musical teams, these, this musical team that I just mentioned, writes many of their own songs, and nothing in the article is ever mentioned about hymns. <laughs> Can you imagine going in there and have a hymnal? I don't think so. Well, it's like a stadium. You go in there, and it's just like going to a concert every week. If you've seen the things, they can't have that. So, um, this is not surprising when you consider that, to our knowledge, no seeker-sensitive or word-of-faith congregation use hymnals at all. Yeah, I don't know if they ever did it one time, but they may have. Apart from the occasional singing of Amazing Grace, the charismatic movement's brain of music has infiltrated almost all evangelical congregations that have forsaken the use of the historic hymns. This is one of the main goals of the Satanists, just that John Todd interview totally went into this. He was the, he was the uh, president of a large secular, or real high up, in a large secular uh, rock music company, and they said that was one of their main goals, is, is to, through the vineyard movement, and through this Christian rock thing, to infiltrate all the churches, because they knew that would have such a, the devil knows, that that would have such a leavening effect on the church, that once they embrace that, they're going to embrace just about everything else that you throw at them. You get them with the music, it's that important. It really is that important. Um, at our former seeker-sensitive Baptist church, we sang songs that originated from the Toronto Revival and from the Vineyard Movement. Two examples of some of the wildest expressions within the Renewal Movement. Musically speaking, there have been methods... There is a method to their madness. At Lakewood and other megachurches, they have strong emphasis to cut all ties with traditional Christianity. Which is true. I don't, number one, I, I choose to cut my ties with them. I choose to come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And then God will receive me. And he will be a father to me and I will be as his son. That's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 14-18. You know, wherefore come out from among them my children, and be not partakers of her plagues, concerning the whore in Revelation. So this is something we need to do. We don't need to let them cut ties with us. You need to come out of this. Okay? But by cutting ties with Christianity, what's going to happen is, is this is more and more and more bass becoming the majority. And as they become more and more the majority, their true colors are going to start showing toward the fundamental congregations. Like Rick Warren said recently, he's coming out and really getting really rabid over any of the fundamental Christians that are coming against him. Saying, you know, they're, what did he say recently? They're like crazy or hellbound or something like that. He's, because he's probably sick of hearing this. So they're gonna, their true colors are going to start showing more and more and more. Guaranteed. All this stuff about how they're so tolerant. And me, they're going to become just like the other religions that don't want to tolerate true Christianity. They're going, to, they're going to be going along with them, eventually. Let's see here. The classic, highly theological hymns and hymnals virtually scream out the dreaded word, tradition. But they also use the words hell, sin, these types of things. Osteen is probably 
the first of many Word of Faith devotees who have melded the successful marketing techniques of the seeker-sensitive megachurches in their positive confession, health, and wealth message. Just like Oprah's doing with the secret. So they kind of blended the two. The blend becomes a potent hybrid that appeals to both sign gift believers, kind of like the charismatics, and the baby boomer seekers. The message that God wants to bless his children with complete physical health, to give them great financial wealth, and to demand little of them regarding their spiritual life is a highly appealing message. So you could have a baby boomer, like possibly my parents or somebody like that, go in there and they hear this and they're like, wow, this is what church is? This wasn't what my parents' church was. You know, this is really cool. This is like, I could do this. Yeah, I think I could take God on these terms. Give me a break. We go to God on His terms. It's not our lives. It's not our rule book. It's His rule book. It's the life He gave us. Even the unsaved. But they look at it a little bit opposite of that. That's why these, these churches are exploding in membership. When you combine this well-known gospel singers, highly orchestrated praise and worship teams, in a decidedly non-church atmosphere, it will appeal to even a wider audience. I mean, that's the most unchurched atmosphere I've ever seen. If you wa- if you ever watched him on TV. I've only watched bits and pieces. I can hardly take much more. But, you know, watching the guy, you just see how slick he is. He just goes in there. He's real nice, real gentle. Wouldn't say a word to offend nobody. And then, and then you look at him, and, and the fact of if somebody's viewing into that for the first time, they see... All of these thousands of people in the stadium are like, who is this guy? I mean, who is this guy that he could draw that kind of crowd? They think, well, he's got to know something good. And then they start listening to him, and nothing in there is defending him. So they're like, wow, I'm going to start following this guy. Everybody else is. Now, if the blind lead the blind, they're both falling in a ditch and die. We cannot forget to mix in the vast television footprint that Lakewood Church promotes, along with its website, Daddy John Osteen's books are still in almost all Christian bookstores, so it's not difficult to see how it can gather 30,000 people in Lakewood's arena, formerly the home of the Houston Rockets. You know, I wish, you know, that your house was formerly the home of some big sports team, so I could claim that myself, you know. That would be kind of neat, wouldn't it? Preaching a stadium. Of course, there'd only still be only four of us in the stadium, but, you know, my voice would carry better, maybe more of an echo thing. Anyway, sorry, I'm being a little sarcastic there. Yeah. So it says, lastly, we cannot lose sight of the fact that a certain synergy builds with any church when it begins to reach such a size. And again, that's very important to understand. You turn this guy on, you see all these thousands of people, you're like, what is going on? You see this high-tech church with elevators, all the stuff looks so professional. And it's really unlike any ministry I've ever seen as far as the, the way they portray it. You know, it's just different. It's not even like the Crystal Cathedral where it actually could be construed as a church. Here's a stadium here. And the roof is this is this like this real dark indigo blue it, it, and um, it's just real the, the it's, it's like the mood they're trying to set is is pretty amazing. So it says lastly we cannot lose sight of the fact that certain synergy builds with any church when it begins to reach such a size. People who have no solid doctrinal foundation will want to attend a place where something is happening. 
And then they got they have in here throwing a coffee bar, an ice rink, and a gym. It doesn't hurt either. So I guess that's... He's got an ice rink in there? Well, we could strap on the skates after service. And then we could go to the gym and get a good workout. And then we could polish it off with a good thing of coffee. Maybe a sandwich or two. And then we could go to their tithing kiosks and, and fork over all our hard-earned money into this worthy ministry. Money well spent, right? This money, it's not going into Satan's kingdom, is it? No. No. I would have to believe he's got tithing kiosks set up all. I wonder if they finally got to the point where they where they actually put the actual, because they were working on this. That, that I did a message on these tithing kiosks that they've got in the churches now. And they were working on one where you could actually slide your credit card on the tithing plate as they were passing it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? Maybe it'll give you a little receipt that prints out real quick be kind of hard to do. I wonder how heavy those plates would be. I mean, you'd think they'd have to get the circuitry small enough that an elderly lady could pass it, but yet at the same time still swipe her card, because you can't make them too heavy. So logistically speaking, we've got to have that tithing plate so it's light enough. Anyway, we'll do a te- well, if, we, if they finally come out with us, we'll do a teaching on that. So anyway, um, <laughs> uh, people... Let's see, in America, bigger's better. After all, many would postulate, if Joel was not being used of the Lord, then why would God allow all these people to come to Lakewood Church? We've already talked about this already. Could it be a sign of God's judgment? This is interesting. On His people who have forsaken His ways. Often, we think of God's judgment as some divine catastrophe. Yet often, and just as catastrophic, is when He simply allows people to have their own way. They're on their way to hell. Understand, this is the closest they're ever going to get to heaven, the vast majority of these people. They're on their way to hell, and God's letting them have it their way. Because my people love to have it so. I believe, and really, that's the scarier part of the deal. If God's judgment is on somebody, God's therefore dealing with them, hopefully. Now, there is there is judgment where God just wipes them out, too. But... Generally, in, in one's life, if God is judging you and dealing with you and, and your life is miserable, and that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, well, that's a good thing. It's when God doesn't ever judge you and doesn't do anything, there's no chastening of God, there's no conviction of your conscience because it's been seared with a hot iron, possibly they've been given over to a reprobate mind. That's not a good thing. Because if there's none of that, how is God... <laughs> Is it possible for them to get saved? Well, with God, all things are possible. But the Bible also says the Spirit of God will not always strive with man forever. So, I don't know. That's God's, that's God's business. I believe the words of Jeremiah are, apl- are applicable to many in the church today. Jeremiah 2.12 Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed themselves out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The Bible talks about the washing of the water of the word, which is one of the ways we become sanctified. On our day-to-day life is by reading the Word of God, and this washes us spiritually. Okay, It's like a spiritual cleansing. Washing in the water of the Word. But see, these devils, they've hewed themselves out cisterns. Cistern is something that holds water. 
but they're broken and they can hold no water. You're not if you go to Joe Olstein's church and you get and you get one of his sermonette snippets with no Bible at all. It's probably not one verse quoted. Maybe maybe references to the Bible. You're not getting washed with the water of the word. You're being corrupted. You're being leavened. You're going to be affected. Your soul and spirit are going to be affected by going there. And if you stay in that, you're going to become more and more delusional. And and most likely you're on your way to hell. As much as Joel no doubt believes the growth they've experienced is due to the blessing of God, it really boils down to three simple things, which have nothing to do with God at all. Number one is Father's legacy in an already existing megachurch. Number two, Joel's slick marketing abilities. Number three, biblical, a biblically errant but hugely popular message which appeals to the masses seeking to have their ears tickled and experience a, quote, good time in church. Um, but I would say, number four, what is the devil doing through Joel Osteen? I would say that's number one. He doesn't get into that. that. What is the devil, what is God permitting the devil to do through this apostate ministry? Is this pure confirmation of Second Thessalonians where God said he will send the strong delusion that they will believe a lie that they might all be damned who receive not the love of the truth they're not getting the truth in Joel Osteen's church they're getting lies I don't know like I said do the math I think it's pretty op- uh, obvious here now he says pray for Joel Osteen like it or not he currently has a tremendous impact on people Pray the Lord open his eyes to biblical truth, that he may take a bold stand to expose error. Now, I don't, I don't believe that there's any hope in that at all. I believe this man is a reprobate who's been turned over to a reprobate mind, that his conscience has been seared with a hot iron. I'm not saying God couldn't do it, but I haven't seen any of this ever happen. In any, there's no other example of this I've ever seen in television ministry. Even these guys that supposedly get judged, like Swaggart and Jim Baker, they all go back to it. They, it's like a dog returning to his vomit, as the Bible talks about. Or the pig wallowing in its own mire. It, it's the same deal. Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. But you know what? The only way good old Joel would ever have a hope of getting saved is through God's judgment. You think if God just lets him live in his same old whimsical life, flitting through life, telling stories, making all that money, and being loved of all men, you think he's ever going to change in and of him? Never, ever, ever will he change. God's severe judgment may do it. I don't know. I don't think so. I think a lot of these people, I'm not even going give to them, give them the credit of being deceived. I believe a lot of them are flat out Satanists. If you were Satan, who would you try to get in the pulpit? Who, who would you... If you were Satan, wouldn't you want to like be at the head of these ministries, like guys like Benny Hinn? And, and like I said, I've got I I've heard twenty hours of footage of these people in Word of Faith through people like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Hagen and these and this guy from Australia did this tape series that I sent out on email. I don't know if you can get it anymore, but I heard twenty hours of footage. Um, where and they and actually the email I have will give you the quotes. They'll give you the quotes about how they're calling out to Satan and these types of things when they slow down the tongues, when they reverse the tongues, when they hear what they're saying off camera. I came to no other conclusion, and I haven't talked to anybody that's watched it, 
that would say that these men are actually Satanists. They're not just deceived. They are Satanists. Pure and simple. But if you were Satan, wouldn't that be what you would covet the most? To try to get in the head of ministries that were reaching and influencing most of the people? Giving them watered-down doctrine? Putting leaven in there? All these lying signs and wonders? And supposed gifts? Isn't that where you try to get your nose in? Well, that's what he's doing. These reprobates in the pulpit will be judged and exposed. That's what I pray. That's what I pray. That they'll be judged and exposed. If it be possible, I pray their souls be saved, because the Bible says, "His will that not one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. The Bible also talks about the wheat and the tares, and them growing up. And that you wouldn't even be able to distinguish between the wheat and the tares. So the Bible talks about, in the Gospels, well, what is wheat? A wheat is a true born-again Christian. What is a tear? Well, a tear is like a weed that grows up with the wheat. If you think about this too, what, what would a tear do if it was growing up next to the wheat? It would steal the nutrition out of the ground that was probably meant for the wheat. Something to think about. And if that wheat's growing, it's going to affect the harvest in a negative way. And if it can, it's going to get in there and leaven things. I believe these men are tares. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Hirelings. Just like the Bible predicted it would be, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. That's the time, day and time we're living in. It shouldn't be of any surprise to us this is happening. The Bible clearly predicted this is the way it's going to be. So I pray these, these reprobates in the, in the pulpit be judged and exposed. That all men would see and fear and declare the work of God that they would wisely consider of God's doing, as Psalm 64 talks about. But how does God judge them? It says, But God shall shoot at them with an arrow, in Psalm 64. Suddenly shall they be wounded, so they shall make their own tongues to fall upon themselves. All that see them shall flee away, and all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. That's how we would have massive repentance. And possibly massive revival. I don't know. That's really the only hope for this, these apostate churches is if the head of these churches were exposed. So anyway, that ends part three. And um, Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and end it here today. And next week we're going to do a brief teaching, unless something major comes up, on the Mormons and their theology. Because I think it's important with this Mitt Romney thing to understand what they believe and how they believe. So I'll go ahead and end this with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we love you for letting us come together, Lord God, and for our salvation, for all the mercy and grace that you have bestowed upon us, Lord God. Pray, Lord God, that we would just all humble ourselves before you, Lord, and that we would be obedient to you, Lord God, no matter what you would require of us. I just pray for the grace and the strength and the courage to do whatever you've set before us to do, that you would forgive us all for any and all sins that we have committed in any way, shape, or form, that you would wipe our slate clean, that there would be nothing that would hinder our communication with Thee, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord. That, Lord God, if there's anyone listening to this, and this is the first time they've heard this, I pray, God, that You would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive, that Your truth would go forth, Lord, and that that truth would convict people, and that they would ultimately get saved, that Your name be glorified through the body of Christ, and that Your convicting power would be upon us. We thank you, Lord God. We love you. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.